You know, it was about a week ago, Sunday, that Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, and seven others were killed in a helicopter crash. And it was such a reminder. It was a shock, I know, to all of us. But also such a reminder that life is precious and life is fragile and life ends far too shortly, too soon sometimes. Whether you were an NBA fan or not, Kobe is, was truly bigger than life. He was an extraordinary person. You know, at 41 years old, when he died, he uh, was in amazing physical condition. He was, had uncanny athleticism. He had won just amazing uh, accomplishments in the realm of sports. Five times he was uh, an NBA champion. He was an 18-time All-Star Uh, The day he died, they said he was worth $600 million. Wow. He had a beautiful family, a gorgeous wife, three darling daughters. He truly just lived an extraordinary life, a life that came to an end far too soon. And his untimely death hit close to home because Kobe had a very uh, intimate relationship with Nike. And so he had a lot of friends here in the Portland area. In fact, uh, after he passed, Nike Nike had a corporate moment of silence for him on campus on Monday and brought in counselors to help the employees with their grief. Because many people, my son works at Nike, but many people right here in our community felt a deep sense of pain knowing that he had died over that weekend. You see, pain is a universal human experience, and we live in a world of suffering, and whether that suffering hits close to home, like it certainly did for Kobe's family, or if we're even if we're a, a few degrees of separation between us and the pain that we experience, the reality is that human life is full of struggle. And this, it's true, there is also beauty and joy and creativity and compassion and kindness and and success. There's all of those great things about life that we experience. This morning, the sunrise was unbelievable from my house, and it was beautiful and glorious, and it brought me great joy. But we also know that in life, there is um, grief and frustration and disappointment and discouragement and disease and decay and failure and death. Both of these things are experiences that we have in life. As James was telling us just a few months ago, we are all impacted by trials of various kinds. Remember what he said in James 1-2, count it all joy when you encounter, when you meet trials of various kinds. Jesus reminds us of that as well when he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now Peter faced all kinds of trials and troubles in his own life, which we talked about a bit last week. Some of his trials and tribulations came because of his own sin, and some of it came at the hands of others who were sinful. Peter understood suffering, and in his letters, he's going to give us a very different perspective about our problems. In 1 Peter, 
And in 2 Peter, we're going to experience, I think literally, the hand of Peter coming and tipping our chins upward so that we can look at our circumstances with hope and glory in the midst of whatever trials we're going through because we're going to be looking upward. We're going to be looking outward. We're going to be looking towards the Lord. We're going to be reminded of all that we have in Him. That's what we're going to experience as we go through this this letter. So today, Peter is going to teach us that Jesus offers us a living hope. And it's a hope that can turn our sorrows into joys. Jesus offers us a living hope that can turn our sorrows into joys. We're going to look at this first part, this first part of 1 Peter in two pieces. First, we're going to look at Peter greeting the believers. He's going to greet them with a blessing. And then in the second part, in verses 3 through 12, Peter's going to remind the believers of their blessing in Christ. So he's going to greet them with a blessing, and then he's going to remind them of the blessings that they have in Christ. So let's dig in. First, we need to know that suffering comes in many, many forms, and the recipients in Peter's letter were specifically suffering for their faith in Christ. That's why they were suffering. Today in the U.S., I don't think Christians live in fear of being found out for their beliefs, or we don't, we don't face political um, persecution for our faith. But there are some ways in which we do suffer. I think we, we suffer ridicule, we suffer insult, um, we are misunderstood, sometimes we're shamed. There are different ways in which our culture does press in on us because of our faith in Christ. I think we all feel that pressure mounting, too, as, our, as our, our, our country seems to increasingly embrace godlessness, and people are delighting in doing what's right in their own eyes, and so there's an increasing pressure against people who profess Christ as Savior. Bible-believing Christians are increasingly attacked for being narrow-minded or being judgmental, and It's more costly, I think, to be a Christian in 2020 than it was in 50 or 60 years ago when America still considered herself at least a Christian nation. So Peter's letter is relevant for us today, and I think it's even going to become more precious in the days ahead when persecution uh, against people who are Christ followers actually intensifies. So Peter begins with a greeting. He says, greeting, Peter, an apostle of Christ. Jesus Christ. It's interesting because as we look at these letters in the New Testament, we find that the writer often identifies himself in the beginning of the letter rather at the end of the letter. We write a letter and then we sign, love Marianne. He's like greeting Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We know right away that he is, he is who he is. And as we talked about last week, Peter is writing to both the Jewish and the Gentile believers who have actually fled Rome because of the growing opposition there against Christianity. You remember the emperor, his name was Nero, um, he had demanded actually that all people worship him as a deity, that all people make sacrifices to him as a deity. The only people in the city of Rome who were legally exempt from doing this were were the Jews. Instead of them having to make sacrifices to Nero, they were allowed to simply pray for him. And if they prayed for him, they didn't have to make sacrifices to him. 
So what happened, as long as the early Christians, who remember the early Christians were all Jews, so as long as the early Christians were, were still viewed as a sect of Judaism, they were worshiping in the synagogues at first, and as long as that was happening, then they were protected under that provision of not having to worship Nero. But once the synagogues expelled the early Christians and the early Christians began to be a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, then they lost that protection and they became a target of Roman persecution. Now remember, Stephen also was stoned. And so after that happened, the believers began to fear for their lives and many of them started to flee outside of Rome. But this also meant that the good news was spreading. It meant that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was now spreading into all of these different areas, and people were hearing about Jesus, and they were believing and receiving him as Savior. Now, specifically, what Peter wants to do in his letters, he wants to encourage those who are living as refugees in Asia Minor, which we talked about was modern-day Turkey. Um, He knew that life was really hard for them because they had left their homeland. They had left everything behind. They were out living as refugees. But more than that, they were also being ostracized because the cultures they were living in did not embrace their religious views or their religious values. And so this is what he says to them. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That opening sentence is packed with so much theology. Um, There are two important doctrines that are mentioned in that first sentence that we actually have to unpack in order to have a firm foundation for the rest of Peter's writing. Two doctrines are the doctrine of election and the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's talk about these things. It's really, really important that we understand these foundational things. So let's talk about the doctrine of election first. Now, Peter, notice that what Peter calls these believers is he calls them the elect exiles. This harkens us back, if you remember a few years ago, if you were in our Ephesians study, we are reminded that the way that Paul addresses the Ephesians in his letter has much of the same language. This is what he said. He said in Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So pause there for a minute. Do you realize that you have been chosen by God for salvation in Jesus Christ? Do you realize that? You have been chosen by God for salvation in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. God set his sights on you before the foundation of the earth. He chose you to belong to him. This was an act of grace upon your life. You did nothing. He simply chose you. But wait, does that mean that some people are not chosen? And if everyone is either chosen or not chosen, then what does it matter whether we share the gospel with anyone, right? They're either chosen or they're not chosen. And if our loved ones are not chosen, then does that mean that God, in effect, has destined them for hell? See, these are really important questions. These are questions that we need to wrestle with. So I want to try to explain some of these things to you to the best of my own understanding. 
First of all, there's disagreement about some of these things that I'm going to share with you. But let me tell you the one thing that everybody agrees. Everybody agrees on this one thing. God has chosen before the foundation of the world to bestow blessing on his people through Jesus Christ. Everybody agrees on that. God has chosen before the foundation of the world to bestow blessing on his people through Jesus Christ. Two things. He chooses to bless with salvation and he chose it before the foundation of the world. But the question is this. Is it God's choice who receives salvation or is it a human choice? In other words, do only those whom God has chosen to be saved receive salvation or does God invite everyone to receive salvation but only those who exercise human belief are actually saved? And does God only choose people that he knows in advance will say yes to him? Or does he invite everyone to know him and only those who receive his invitation by grace are effectually chosen? Have you thought about these questions before? This, of course, is the theological discussion of the centuries. (laughs) But let me share with you how I best understand it from Scripture. So first of all, what we have to start with is the foundation that we are all hopelessly dead in sin. All of us. Hopelessly separated from God. There is no way that we can become anything other than dead in sin and separated from God unless God moves by his grace on our hearts. He begins this work of grace. You know, because the reality is we love the pleasure of sin, don't we? Sin is so much fun. And we love the fact that we could be in complete control of our own lives. We all want to be queen of our own queendom. queendom. That's, that's just the way it is. That's our base nature. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans 8, verse 7. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So apart from a movement of God's grace on our hearts, we're hopelessly separated from God. But God's desire is that every human being will be saved. His desire was that Emperor Nero would be saved. His desire is that Hitler would be saved. His desire is that every person could be saved. Remember, as we looked, I think, last week in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he challenged us to pray for everyone, for our emperors, for our leaders. He said this, he said, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All people. God's desire is that no one would perish. Now, on the cross, God provided a ransom for every person through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, that means that Jesus paid the price for every person's sin, past, present, and future. No sin was left uncovered by the blood of Christ. 1 John 2.2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Every person who believes will be saved, and this opportunity is available to every person. Acts 16.31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Now, I also think that there are some people who are chosen for special favor, that they're elected for special favor. So that means that there are people, I think, who God determines, he has a purpose for them, and they may indeed have an irresistible calling to believe. So let me give you an example. The nation of Israel, as an example. God chose the nation of Israel for his purposes, his plans and purposes. No matter how they at times obeyed or disobeyed or believed or didn't, didn't disbelieved, God had a purpose for them, and he was successful in carrying out his purpose through them. They responded to him. I think Abraham was a recipient of special, extraordinary blessing. Abraham was called out, and he received a promise of a land, a people, and to be a blessing to all nations. I think Paul, Saul, was a person that was singled out for exceptional blessing, special favor from God. I think there are other. I'm not sure Jonah actually had a choice. I think Jonah had an irresistible calling on his life. He was going to respond to God. You know, there are people in Scripture that seem to have a special favor from God, a special blessing, an irresistible calling. But in general, I think that God works different ways with different people in different times. And we have to give him room to do that. He's God, is he not? But I believe that Christ died for all that all are loved and all are welcomed into God's family, but not all will choose to receive the blessing by grace offered through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we might understand this doctrine of election a little bit differently, but there's one thing that you need to know, and that is that God, by his grace, has chosen you to belong to him. He has chosen you. Um, He chose you before you were born, and by grace, through your response to Jesus in faith, you have been saved, or you will be saved as you respond to him. But you have been chosen by him regardless. Does that make sense? Okay. So now we're going to talk about the Trinity, the second big doctrine in this passage. I think I've shared with you that one of the defining moments of my own faith as a little girl, growing up in the Episcopal Church, where we talked a lot about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was laying in bed at night and just wrestling, who is God? Who is the Son and the Spirit? And how do all these three persons work together as one Godhead? I have a diagram to sort of help you wrap your own mind around this. This is the Trinity. So God is one person, but there's, he's made up, he's one, God is one, but he's made up of three persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Spirit. God the Spirit is not God the Father. There are three distinct persons that work with one mind in all things. All three persons of the Godhead also work together to bring you to salvation, all three of them. So God the Father chose you before the foundation of the earth, before you ever chose him back. He chose you because of his grace and because of his love. Jesus Christ died for you while you were still a sinner, while I was still a sinner. He died. He made our salvation possible by his shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And the Spirit then applies the benefits of Christ's work on the cross to our lives. So the Spirit works in setting us apart, in sealing us unto God, in changing our hearts, in leading and directing and guiding and opening our minds to the Word of God and answering our prayers and forming us into the likeness of Christ. The Spirit is given to us to dwell within us here as we live as Christ followers on this earth. The Spirit's also moving 
amongst people who are not believers yet to begin to tender their hearts so they possibly can receive this invitation of grace through faith in Jesus. So with these profound realities in mind about who God is and about what he's accomplished for our salvation, with all of this in mind, in that first big sentence that Peter started his letter with, he then gives us a blessing of grace and peace. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that's what I want us to start with, that grace and peace are two of our greatest blessings from God. Grace and peace. Now, grace describes God's character. God is, his heart is a heart of gracious love for us. He pours out his love on us lavishly, without measure, without ending. Um, No one earns or deserves God's love. God loves because he loves. That's who he is. By his grace, he loves us in this way. And he pours it out in abundance because of his grace. Now, peace describes our relationship with God through Christ. So we are no longer at war with God. We're no longer in rebellion against him. We're no no longer lovers of sin and and, um, desiring to be queen of our own queendom. We understand who God is, and we have peace with him now in a a relationship of of, um, peace. We're We're on his kingdom team. We're his children Now, peace doesn't mean that we don't have problems. It doesn't mean that our lives are calm and seamless. It doesn't mean that we're not distressed about the circumstances of our lives. What it means is that we can experience now, and it's supernatural, an inner calm in the midst of whatever troubles and trials we're going through. Because we know that God is at the helm of our ship, and we are not going down. Having peace with God, too, enables us to have peace with other people. And that also is supernatural. The fact that we have love and grace in our hearts for others is because God pours that into us first, and then we're able to pour it into our relationships and create peace where there should be fighting and tension and bitterness and hostility. Miracles of peace take place. Have you ever received this gift of God's grace? The grace of he chose you. He gave you an invitation to receive Jesus as your Savior. He poured grace into you through his love. Have you received that from him? Have you responded to this invitation that he has extended to you um, by agreeing, yes, Jesus is my Savior. It's just a yes, Lord. It's just a yes and amen. I agree. Do you know that you are so loved by God that no human being can ever love you in the way that God can love you. You are so loved from, by God that no human being can love you in the same way that God can love you. Are you certain that if your life ended unexpectedly today, like Kobe Bryant's a week ago Sunday, that you would stand before the Lord Jesus in perfect peace? Are you certain of that? You know, the thing about Kobe, I don't, I, get, I don't want to say where he was with God. Of course, nobody knows but him and God. But I was encouraged when I read that he actually was in church the morning that he died. He actually was a Catholic, and he attended regularly a Catholic church. He had prayed that morning. The parish priest defined him as a man of faith. Praise God. He didn't know hours later that he was going to be standing in the presence of God. And do you know that if that were to happen to you, you would have perfect peace between you and God? 
Do you need God's grace and his peace right now today in a circumstance in your life? Peter said that he was praying that grace and peace would be multiplied to the recipients of his letter. How do you need grace multiplied in your life right now? Is there, is there a hardship, a circumstance, a frustration, a disappointment, a longing, a broken marriage, a broken relationship? Is there some place in your life where you really need to receive this grace and peace right now, this morning? I want to just ask you, would you just close your eyes for just a moment? And would you think about where is that place in your life where you need God's grace and peace multiplied to you right this moment? And I want to just give you a moment of quiet to just talk to the Lord about that, and then we'll continue on. Well, next, Peter encourages us to not just cope with our sufferings, but to actually experience hope in the midst of our trials. In fact, he's going to tell us that God can actually turn our sorrows into joys. In this next part, this is just a beautiful description that Peter gives us of six reasons why we can actually rejoice in our sufferings. So he begins, reason number one is he says, we have a living hope. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's saying the reason that we have this living hope is that we are born again. Okay, that term, born again, that phrase has become such a bad has a bad connotation in the political arena where people who are born again are basically responsible for everything that's ever gone wrong with our country. (laughs) It's just gotten a bad rap. But the reality is it's such a beautiful term because every person who has received Jesus as Lord and Savior is born again. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we too are going to be raised up like him and we're going to live with him in glorified bodies like his glorified body forever in eternity in heaven and also for a time on the new earth. This is a beautiful, beautiful reality of what it means to be a Christ follower. So this living hope that he's talking about, it actually changes our perspective about our earthly trials. Because instead of despairing over the hopelessness of our situations, we actually look up and we actually eagerly await things to come. We live with our eyes on the future, not just on the present. And this hope then grows stronger as we mature in our faith. It's part of the journey of faith. We find this living hope growing stronger and stronger as we mature. In fact, we often kind of observe this kind of living hope being kind of full-blown or fully actualized in a person who is at the end of their life and they're getting ready to meet Jesus face-to-face. I saw this kind of hope alive in my friend Ellie Hotze right before she passed away about a year ago. And as she got near to the end of her days, she was filled with such hope, such joy, such rejoicing, such worship. She was so prepared to meet Jesus as a person younger than me, but because of cancer, she knew that she was going to meet him. And the kind of joy, the kind of living hope that I witnessed in her, that's this kind of living hope that 
that Peter is talking about. Living hope is not like a hope so kind of hope. It's not like I hope so. It's a confident assurance in the promises of God and in our eternal future glory with him. The reason we have a living hope is because Jesus is alive. He's alive. Right now, he is alive. And that's why we have this living hope. The second reason for rejoicing is he talks about our eternal, our permanent inheritance. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this heavenly inheritance, it's guaranteed. It's certain. It's not like most things that are promised to us on earth, but actually we never really see the fulfillment of those promises. Human promises, as we know, can just be meaningless words because Oftentimes, there's no sincere intent to hold up the agreement in the words that are promised. We've all experienced that, right? Human promises don't really mean that much sometimes, but God's promises really do. On my first trip to Rwanda, um, our team missed our connecting flight in Belgium, and we missed it by 10 minutes. Now, there are 21 of us on this team from this plane who were meaning to connect to another plane from Belgium to Rwanda. Now, you would think an airline, 10 minutes, would they not want to hold the plane for 21 people? But they didn't. So I think they were anticipating they were going to have an angry crowd walking off the plane. So as we deplaned, there was a ticket agent there, and he handed each one of us a voucher for a hotel and a boarding pass for the next flight that was going to Rwanda the very next day. So we thought, okay, well, at least we feel well taken care of. The next day, we show up at the ticket counter of the airline that we had flown in on, and I will not tell you who they were, are, but if I did, you would all agree this is not uncommon. So we walk to this <laughs> ticket counter. It's crickets. It's dark. There's not a single agent. It's completely, it's an American airline company, and it's completely dark, and we're like, okay. But our boarding passes say we're going to fly on another airline into, through, through Qatar and into Rwanda. So we go over to the other ticket counter. We hand them our boarding passes, and they look at us, and they're like, you don't have any reservations on our flight. They had handed us bogus boarding passes. 21 of us did not have seats or, or um, boarding passes that were valid for this flight. Now, that's just an example of <laughs> how human promises sometimes have no backing. They actually disappoint us. This is not how God operates at all. God guarantees our inheritance in heaven. And unlike our earthly inheritances, if you've received one, you know that they decay, they lose value, they perish. The inheritance we receive from God can't be ruined, it can't be stained, it can't be polluted, it can't be lost. And best of all, God keeps our inheritance up in heaven. He keeps it with himself where he dwells, where there is no sin and no decay and no evil. It is the absolute safest possible place. And this inheritance includes the completion of our salvation. So when we receive Christ as Savior, we, we, that's the beginning. That's the now part of our inheritance. But there is a not yet part, a part that hasn't yet been received. And that is going to happen when we see Jesus face to face and we dwell with him forever in our new glorified bodies. That's the completion of our inheritance. And knowing that one day there will be no more tears and no more sorrow, knowing that is the source of great hope and joy today. It's a reason why we can rejoice, because we have this eternal inheritance to look forward to this day when there will be no more pain and no more suffering.
Well, the third is our divine protection, because Peter says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Guarded, he says. Now, this word guarded is a military term. And the implication is that there's this inner area of protection that nobody can touch, like a garrison inside city walls, or think of a vault inside of a bank. So he's saying that another reason we can rejoice in our suffering is that we are protected by the power of Almighty God. Even if we die, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign, and trustworthy. So death may actually destroy our physical bodies. It will at some point. But God has promised to guard our souls. He has promised to raise us up to new life for all eternity. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Hebrews 13.6 says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So knowing that God is actively protecting our lives is a great comfort to us and a source of joy. Then he talks about the other, the fourth, is our growing faith. So he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The thing about trials is that they actually prove our faith. And I can tell you this has been certainly true in my own life, where trials have come to me in my life, and I've had to search deeply about what do I believe And then I've had to make very deliberate choices to obey God in those moments when everything in me wanted to do just the opposite. Those trials force me, what do I believe? And am I I going to bring my will to align with my faith? And am I going to act on my faith and choose to do what God would have me do rather than do everything else I wanted to do, which in that moment was not what God wanted me to do? Pain has a way of growing and strengthening our faith. We live in a world, of course, that's tainted by sin and death and evil. We can't escape pain. None of us can escape pain. God, of course, didn't make our world this way, but he is actually able to use our sufferings for good purposes. And one of those purposes is actually to strengthen our faith. He can use our sufferings to strengthen our faith. Peter reminds us that our sufferings actually make our faith more precious than gold. Like as gold is heated up. And then the impurities float to the top, and those impurities can be skimmed off. And when they are, they leave the gold far more pure and more valuable than it was before. And in the same way, when we're under the fire of trials, it forces our faith to rise to the surface, and the impurities are washed away, the false thinking, the false loves, the the things that distract us. And then we're left with a faith that is pure and more true and faithful than it was before. Trials have a way of turning our focus back to God in humble dependency. They have a way of teaching us patience because we realize in trials that we have to wait on the Lord. We're reminded that we're actually not in control. And we also experience God's faithfulness to meet us in the hard places and grow us up in our faith. And when we grow up in our faith, even when it's through trials, that's actually a source of joy for us. Well, next, he says, we have an unseen Savior. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
So one of the reasons that we can rejoice in times of suffering is that we actually have confidence in the unseen power of Christ. Now, Peter's words remind us of the scene between Jesus and Thomas. Remember where Thomas was refusing to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead unless he'd actually seen the holes in his hands. And Jesus said to Thomas this, he said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. That's us. We have not seen Jesus and we have believed or we are in the process of believing. Often in our times of suffering, it's the unseen presence of Christ that is most profoundly felt. You know, we are uniquely blessed, actually, because we don't depend on the physical, tangible presence of Jesus in order to experience comfort and strength. In the days when Jesus was walking the earth, he was limited. He couldn't be everywhere at once. Remember, he couldn't get to the tomb fast enough for Mary and Martha when Lazarus died. He was limited. He could only be in one place at one time. We have the benefit, because Jesus is our risen Lord, that he is able by his Spirit to be with each one of us all the time. It is better this way. We are never alone in our trials. God is with us, and that is an experience of indescribable joy, which means a kind of joy that is so profound that words cannot express. Well, lastly, Peter reminds us that we have a guaranteed inheritance. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We know that people don't always deliver on their promises. And my son Spencer just flew, he works for Nike, he just flew back from India on Friday. He was in India for a week. And when he got to the airport in Bangalore, and he checked his bags, and they tagged them, Portland, they made a promise to him they were going to deliver his bags in Portland 35 hours later. Well, he arrived, no bags. The bags finally came last night, four days after they were supposed to have arrived. You see, human beings don't deliver always very well on their promises. It's because they don't have control of all the deciding factors, but God does. He has control of all the deciding factors. Jesus Christ guarantees the delivery of our salvation because the most deciding factor has already been determined. He finished the work on the cross. It's done. He has guaranteed and and made our salvation 100% possible. So those are the six reasons that Peter's telling us why we can rejoice in times of suffering. But now I want to just, just put them all together and just put this passage together. Think about the things I've shared with you, these six reasons why we can rejoice. And let me just read this passage to you again and just let this soak into your heart. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That has deep meaning, doesn't it now? So these six reasons make rejoicing in the midst of suffering possible. And that doesn't mean that our sufferings aren't painful. They are painful. It's important to grieve, to lament, to cry, to mourn. Tears are meant to express the sadnesses of our life. Jesus wept. But the difference is that we're not swallowed up in despair because Jesus provides a living hope for us. We have this long-range perspective about our lives, and we know that God is with us and that he loves us and he's strengthening us and he's comforting us and he's empowering us to walk through these various trials that we face every day. As we end our passage that we looked at today, Peter reminds us that the prophets actually, they look forward to the time that we're in today when people would experience this kind of saving grace in God. They knew it was coming one day. God had revealed it to them, but they didn't know when. This is what he says. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the, midst, in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things from which angels long to look. So when the prophets were giving these revelations, they saw that there was going to be a time when the Messiah would come. They saw this mountain. And then they saw another mountain, the time when the Messiah would come again. They had no ability, as they looked straight on at these two mountain peaks of prophecy, they had no sense of discerning the timing of these things. When would these things come? They didn't know. Now for us, we know that Jesus was prophesied to come the first time, and he came. And he's prophesied to come again, and he will come. But if we look at it from the side, we see there's quite a valley between these two mountains. There's quite a bit of time. This is where we're living today. We're living in the church age. So far, it's been 2,000-something years. How long it will be, we don't know. But Jesus will come back exactly as the prophets told and as Jesus told us. So the truth is that God has blessed you with a living hope through Jesus Christ, your Savior. He's blessed you with a living hope. This is such a gift to you and me. We have a living hope. Are you experiencing that living hope in your life right now? Are you discovering this hope in the pages of your Bible as you're doing your study or from the pulpit as you're listening to the word being preached or in a worship song as you're singing it or in the testimonies that you hear in a podcast? Are you experiencing this kind of living hope? This living hope is one of the greatest blessings of our salvation. It is literally a chin tipper upper, a change of perspective to be able to go from being down in the guts of our burdens and our struggles to be able to look up with joy and hope and know that, that we are loved and we are in a relationship with a living God. We have a living hope and that this is not a world of just immense hopelessness. It is a world where though we go through trials and struggles, we live with a different perspective because we have our eyes on Christ and that is such a different reality than people who don't know Christ live with every day. 
So he is worthy of our blessing, and he is worthy of our worship. And so I wanted to end our time together. Um, I want to show you something that's going to kind of pull this whole passage together for you, and then we're going to end our time together in worship before you go out to your groups. It's time again to bring our blessing, to bring a blessing to our God. What mercy he has shown, causing us to be born again. Born into a living hope, because our Christ is raised. Born into a family. Born into a future. Treasure endless and unfading, held in heaven's hands, hands that guard our hearts, hearts that trust in God, convinced that He will save us, confident He will show Himself. We stand now rejoicing. Even in the trial, our fire-tested faith grows hot, bringing glory to our God. We have never seen Him, and still we love Him. We don't see Him now, and still we rejoice. Joy without words, joy full of glory. We are being saved, have been saved, will be saved. We bring a blessing now to the Father of our Savior, our one and living hope.